Yo, 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 what up, what up? Oh, man. Gonna have to come up with a rap message or something. I got the devil on my back, but I ain't scared. I can, okay. I gotta do some practicing. <laughs> Next week, I'll come down with my jeans down to here, okay? Give me a little hat sideways. Thank you, Dijon. All right. Let's see, where are we at? We're church, right? Okay, I'm, I'm in Uptown, right? Just kind of had one of those back to the future moments there. Well, yeah. Yes, J.D., that's you down there, right? Yeah, in your usual spot. All right. Okay, now you can calm yourself back down now, and then we'll go back up again, okay? Maybe. <laughs> I was a little concerned there when Seth was praying, Lord, make us comfortable tonight when Mark talks. I go, Seth, don't pray that. Never mind, I'll explain later. Let me ask you a question. We're talking about the passionate life. So I want to ask you a couple of questions. You don't have to answer. I just want you to think about them. Honestly, think about them. Are you the kind of person that can't wait to get up every morning? Are you the kind of person that literally looks forward most of the time to every new day that's starting and you're ready to attack the day? Are you the kind of person that right now as I speak and tomorrow morning when your day's going, there's something burning on the inside of you because you have a purpose greater than yourself? Or let me ask you this question. Are you the person, are you the kind of person that, to be honest, if you're really honest, life's been kind of boring for you lately? It's kind of mundane. If you were going to describe the Christian life to someone right now, you'd really rather not do that because, frankly, you're just kind of going through the motions. The Christian life has become burdensome to you. It's become heavy. It's become wearisome. And it's kind of worn you down. And you're just kind of tired of it all. If, if those things are some of the things you've been feeling lately then I believe this series is designed by God for you. It's entitled The Passionate Life. When I say The Passionate Life, I'm talking about a life that's full of vigor, full of vitality, full of meaning, full of zeal, because there's something on the inside of you that irresistibly drives you on and urges you on. It's captivated you, and you are moved by it every day of your life. I shared with you last week that when I think of the passionate life, there's one person that comes to mind. And that's the Apostle Paul. In fact, uh, the city of St. Paul is named after that man. This one man, scholars believe, was about four foot nine or five foot tall. This one man brought the greatest empire of the world literally to its knees over the course of time. Because of the passion and the zeal of the Apostle Paul, literally millions and billions of lives have been turned upside down. Paul would go to great lengths. He would pay any price, no matter what it cost him, to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to a broken and hurting world. Paul was a man 
who had been captured by God. And last week we talked about the first, Paul, if you want to call it, Paul's first secret to a passionate life. Paul recognized that he had been called by God. He realized that he had been chosen and appointed by God for a unique and special purpose. The passionate life starts with that one incident in your life. It starts with that understanding, that discovery, that realization that the God of the universe has called you and picked you for a specific and special reason in your life. And when you come to that realization, life is no longer the same. Paul carried this inside him for years and years. And I shared with you that one of the secrets of Paul's life and one of the secrets of his burning passion was that he nurtured the memory of the God moments in his life. Paul was not forgetful of the God moments in his life. He was not forgetful of those times when God touched him and God spoke to him. And like Mary, the mother of Jesus, when the angel came to her, she treasured in her heart the things that God spoke to her. Paul was no different. Paul tells us near the very end of his life, he is standing before King Agrippa. His life is hanging in the balance. Paul knew that the end of his life would be in Rome. God had revealed that to him. And Paul stands before King Agrippa with great confidence. And he says, Oh, Agrippa, oh, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to my heavenly vision. I want to ask you this question tonight before we get into Paul's other secrets. Have you been disobedient to your heavenly calling? Have you let it slide? Have you let it drift? Have you forgotten it? Or have you nurtured it and watered it and fed it until on the inside of you it is a raging, unquenchable fire? Most Christians I know to be honest, have not nurtured it. They've not fed it. They've not added fuel to it. They've not done what Paul told his young protege, Timothy, fan into flame the gift and calling of God within you. They have neglected it. They have let it go. And then they wonder why they're not experiencing the deeper life. And they go on a quest. They go looking for the more. And they look for it here. And they look for it there. And they look for it over here. And it elusively evades their grasp. When all the while, it's back there. It's back at the calling of God on your life. It's back at the place where you know in your heart, God touched you. God was speaking to you. God was talking to you. And I have treasured those moments in my life because I know they were divine moments. They were God moments in my life. And everything flows from my recognition of them, my remembrance of them, and nurturing what they mean. Every single one of you here tonight have been called by God. You just may not have realized it yet, or you may have forgotten it, or you may have let it 
slide. You've been called by God. From before your birth, you were called by God for a unique and special eternal purpose. You have been brought into existence by God to make a difference in the world and in eternity for Jesus Christ. You are as significant to God as John the Baptist, as Paul, as Mary, as Esther, as John the Apostle, as Peter, as James, as anyone in the Scriptures. Your life is just as significant. And when you come to the understanding of that, life takes on a whole different perspective. But there was some other things that we're going to get into in the coming weeks and tonight that were equally important to the Apostle Paul that impassioned and inspired his life. And we're going to get into tonight this other component that laid hold of the Apostle Paul in such an extraordinary way that he writes that he was compelled to follow Christ. And the word compelled means irresistibly driven. It's found in the book of Romans, in chapter 8. And I'll read it to you this evening. Paul is writing. This is one of his first books, not the first, but one of his earlier books. What can we say about such wonderful things as these things? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since God did not spare even His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, won't God, who gave us Christ, also give us everything else? Who dare accuse us whom God has chosen for His own? Will God? No! He is the one who has given us right standing with Himself. Who then will condemn us? Will Christ Himself? No! For He is the one who died for us and is raised to life for us and is sitting at the place of highest honor next to God pleading on our behalf. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean He no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or we're persecuted or hungry or cold or in danger or threatened with death? No! In spite of all of these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us. For I am convinced that nothing can ever separate me from His love. Death can't and life can't. The angels can't and the demons can't. Our fears for today, our worries about tomorrow, and even the powers of hell cannot keep God's love away from me. Whether I am high above the sky or in the deepest ocean, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of Christ that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. One of the most well-read passages in the Bible. But it is often one of the most ill-conceived, misunderstood passages in the Bible. Paul is writing this passage, this, this guy. Now I'm going to tell you a little bit more about his life tonight. Paul is writing this passage in the Bible not as a dispassionate, distant inspired writer whose hand almost like an etch-a-sketch is copying the words as the Holy Spirit made his hand move. 
But Paul is fully engaged in what he is writing because through the process of understanding, he had come to realize these things personally in his life. You see, Paul never forgot, he never forgot what he did in his past life and how loving God had been to him. You see, Paul himself writes just two chapters earlier, Oh, miserable man that I am! Oh, wretched man that I am! Who will save me from this body of death? Paul wrestled with tremendous guilt and shame. This was not something that the Apostle Paul was simply writing about as someone passes on information. He was writing from the experience of his life. And he'd come to the discovery that God loved him overwhelmingly even in spite of the wretched things that Paul had done. You may not realize tonight what Paul did, but I want to describe to you in a little bit of detail what the Apostle Paul had done. Many of you may look at your life as I have many times my own And you may not like what you see. You may not like what you did. You may not, you may look at your sin. We have this terrible habit as Christians, and we tend to stare at our shortcomings. We tend to stare and focus on that which we're not. The devil, he's great at reminding us of all the ugly things in our life we've said or we've done. The Apostle Paul was no different. And he writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and listen really carefully to this, How thankful I am to Jesus Christ our Lord for considering me trustworthy and choosing me to serve Him, even though I used to scoff at the name of Christ. I hunted down His people, harming them in every possible way I could. But God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how incredibly kind and gracious the Lord was. He filled me completely with faith and love. This is a true saying and everyone should believe it. Christ came into the world to save miserable sinners and I was the worst of them all. But that is why God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of the great patience He has with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize they too can believe in Him, receive eternal life, and experience the love of Christ. Now, sometimes we don't like to go down the gory roads, but I want to go down the gory road just a little bit. Paul scoffed at Jesus. He cursed the name of Jesus Christ. Paul hated Jesus Christ. He hated Him. He was very aware that supposedly the Messiah had come. He was very aware of the Christian's message and he hated Christ. He cursed Christ in his heart and he hated Christians. And Paul not only hated them from a distance, but he entered their homes and he drugged them out by their hair in the streets, screaming and pleading for their life. And he was merciless to them. He beat them. He maimed them. He injured them. He injured fathers and mothers right in front of their own children's eyes. This man was merciless. 
This man was heartless. This man was a violent religious criminal. It was Paul who gave the official approval for our first Christian martyr, Stephen, at his stoning. And symbolically, all those who were throwing rocks laid their coats at the authoritative Paul's feet while they crushed Stephen's skull with stones. And blood was everywhere. Imagine for just a moment that you're married and you have three children. And the neighbor enters your home and in front of your eyes beats your children to death. And then begins beating your wife. Your children die. Your wife survives with a severe concussion. The person is thrown in jail. It was a 20-year-old that did this. And you begin, you, the husband, begin visiting them in prison with an intent of adopting them as your son to replace the three you lost. You can't even fathom that. You won't fathom it. You refuse to fathom it because it sounds so pathetically unjust. That is exactly what God did with Paul. You better believe this man was captivated by the love of Jesus Christ. Because he could not believe his ears that in spite of everything he had done to the children of the Savior, the bride of Christ, that God wanted him, that God loved him, that God cared about him, that God forgave him, that God gave him right standing in the eyes of God, and he had to do nothing to deserve it. When you put Paul's life in perspective, and you begin to understand what Paul understood about God, what I read in Romans chapter 8, you see the gospel is the embodiment of the love of God. The gospel is the story of God's love for the world. Romans 5.8 For God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The cross, the gospel, is the embodiment of God's love for you. And the reason that so many Christians do not live an inspired, passionate life is they do not understand the gospel. They don't get it. It has not registered with them. They have not, in a sense, grasped it and pulled it in and made it their own and understood, on the one hand, just how pathetically wretched we are and that in our wretchedness, Christ loves us and died for us and gives us His life. Paul's life was utterly altered by the love of God. 
that God had for him. It was mind-blowing to Paul, you see, because Paul had spent his previous life, his B.C. days before Christ, accusing Christians. And now he writes in Romans, Who will dare accuse us? Will God? No! I don't know if you've ever... I'm I'm, going to reveal the storyline to a movie for you, and if you get mad at me, that's okay. It's not in the theaters right now. It's in DVD. I went and got The Machinist the other night. I was intrigued by Christian Bale, some of the things I'd read about. And so I thought I'd watch The Machinist. It was a very intriguing movie. But you know what the whole movie's about? It's about the tortured conscience of a guilty man. Entire movie. Now, you won't understand that till the very end. So I just ruined the movie for you, but that's okay. What you think you're seeing is this cycle. You think actually you're seeing this plot unveiled by people around him against him. There's this mysterious man in the movie. I mean, you can't quite figure out who it is, what's going on. Then for a while you think he's a psychopath. But in the end, one little piece of the puzzle is plugged in and the whole movie, you realize this man is tortured by his conscience because of something terrible that he did. That's what you and I are when we don't understand the gospel. The devil just beats us up. The flesh beats us up. Our memories of the past beat us up. And the past could have just been ten seconds ago. And it's there haunting us. But, but do, you, do you know? I'm going to bring something else up that you may not be happy about. But, but I'm using it to make a point. Nothing more, nothing less. How do you think Michael Jackson feels right now in his ranch? Just going through the most gut-wrenching trial of his life. And the jury, they weren't even his peers. People who studied very carefully the case declared him not guilty. How do you think he feels? Now, I'm sure he wishes... The whole world would change their mind, or many in the world. But the judge of the whole universe, God, has declared you not guilty, period. And no one can charge you. No one can bring a charge against you that will ever stand in the sight of God. Paul understood this. And it radically changed his life because you see... It's, it's an expression of God's love. And Paul goes on to write, I have come, become convinced. Convinced, that reveals a conviction of his heart. Convinced, conviction, come from the same derivative. I am convinced, persuaded, absolutely sure, nothing can separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Nothing. God loves me. God is for me. God believes in me. God trusts me. And God put me into service. And Paul was absolutely changed by this event. He was changed. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him would never perish but have everlasting life. The Gospel is God expressing His love to the undeserving. And when the undeserving decide by faith to accept it 
and receive it, something revolutionary happens. Now, it's easy. It's easy for us as Christians to forget the most important things. I want to talk about that this evening. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I, wrote, I, I mentioned to you earlier, there was this force that, that irresistibly drove Paul on. It was a driving force in his life. You know what it was? For the love of Christ compels me, Paul said. The love of Christ compels me. Paul did not serve Christ out of duty. Paul did not serve Christ because he thought he had to. Paul did not serve Christ because he was afraid of God. Paul served Christ because he was in love. You ever seen somebody in love? Now, I'm not talking about people who've been married about 15 years. I'm talking about people who are in love. <clears throat> I wish I could say all people who've been married 15 years are in love, but a lot aren't. I'm talking about that, that, that state of freshness when people are in love. When they are sort of slapping themselves that she likes me. And she's sort of slapping herself that he likes me. And they're captivated. Paul lived in that moment his whole life. His whole life after he came to Christ. Because he nurtured the memory. Now, I'll tell you a little love secret. I, I'm, not a, uh, I'm by no means a perfect husband. I'm not even close. But one of the things that helps me in my love for, for my wife, you may not know this, but I have a very vivid imagination. I have a very strong, well, I, I have a strength in mind. I have, uh, I've developed over the years a strong thought life. But one of, the, one of the things that I've done in my relationship with Kathy is I nurtured the memory of our moment. I could describe it in great detail today as though it happened yesterday. And it was almost 28 years ago that our eyes met under that popcorn stand in the rain and I knew I, I was captivated. I was captivated. And I have nurtured the memory. I don't, let me put it this way, I don't rely just on, Kathy's a human, you've got to remember that, and I'm a human, we're not God. So if I relied on her lovableness each and every day, well, that might go up and down. And if she relied on hers, it might go up and down. But I nurture the memory of how blown away I was that this woman would love me. And what it was like, and what it was like when I used to sleep by the telephone. And the month I had a $450 phone bill. Because we talked so much while she was in Kansas. I remember it all. I have the letters down in a box, waterproof box, in case my basement floods. And from time to time, I take them out and I read them in their dated order. And I remind, and you know, I did this recently. And when I got done, tears were streaming down my face because, and I, I'm not lying to you, every single thing we wrote to each other about has happened all of our hopes, all of our dreams, all of our prayers, and I nurture that love. I fan it. But with God, God doesn't change. What happens is we drift. And we get all wrapped up in our own insecurities and our own shortcomings and our own failures. And But the Apostle Paul, what's really mind-blowing about the Apostle Paul was he was so single-minded in his commitment to the love of God for him, 
to that memory and to feeding and nurturing that memory. Now, as I said earlier, Paul wasn't always like that. His Christian life, he brought a lot of baggage to the Christian life. Paul was a violent man. Paul writes more than any other author in the New Testament about love. The subject of love and the subject of God's love. Paul went through his own personal crisis, and I'm going to share with you a little bit about mine this evening. And how God transformed my life with His love. But by the time Paul wrote Romans 8, Paul was convinced of the love of God. And I believe there was a process that went on in Paul's life as he looked at his own failings, his own shortcomings, and then he looked at God. And then God began speaking to Paul's heart and taking the scales off, as it were, of the eyes of his heart so he could understand what forgiveness and love really, really meant. And when Paul finally got it, and he continued, of course, getting it deeper and deeper throughout his life, It was the fuel for His flame. Passion comes when we experience God's love. The Bible says in 1 John, and we have come to know and believe the love which God has for us. The word know, we have come to know and believe. Know and believe. The word know is the same word that the Bible uses for Adam to know Eve. It meant in an intimate way, in a physical way, in an experiential way. It did not mean Adam kind of knew a little about sex. It means Adam had sex. He knew her. There's a lot of Christians, they know about God. They know about God's love. They can quote you the verse, but they never fully experienced it in their heart and had their heart turned on by it and it just won't go off because they've been overcome and overwhelmed by the love that God has for them. Because they see, in one sense, how undeserving yet how incredibly merciful God was to them and they actually believe, I receive that, Lord. I take that. I believe that this is really how you feel about me and I'm no longer going to be staring at my shortcomings, but I'm going to gaze at your incredible love for me. Paul nurtured the memory and awareness of God's unconditional love. And I would like to share with you in closing tonight Paul's great prayer for the believers. And then a story. And then we'll close. In Ephesians chapter 3, listen with me to the writing of Paul. And I pray that Christ will be more and more at home in your heart as you trust in Him. May your roots go down deep into the soil of God's marvelous love. And may you have the power to understand as all people should, as all God's people should, See, they don't all, but they all should. I pray that you roots would go down deep into the soil of God's marvelous love and that you would understand, as all God's people should, in other words, Paul, it was normal. It wasn't abnormal. It was normal that you'd understand this. How high, how wide, how deep, how long this love really is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is so great you'll never fully understand it. Then you'll be filled. Now listen to this. Then, when's then? When you experience it. 
then you'll be filled with the fullness of life and power that comes from God. You want to know why your life seems powerless? Why you don't have the passion? Why you don't have that spark, that zeal, that enthusiasm? That abundant life that Jesus promised? Because you've been planting your roots in the wrong place. And do you know what your roots are? Your roots are your thought life. Your roots, the roots to your life, you are not a tree. Why is Paul talking plants here? He's talking symbolically, allegorically, metaphorically. He's talking about what you think about. What you allow your heart to embrace and believe and what you feed. And Paul prays, oh, I pray, Father, that Christ would be more comfortable and intimate and familiar in their hearts. Sometimes Christ isn't very comfortable to us in our heart. He doesn't feel that way, does He? Because we feel so unworthy. Because our eyes, our thought life, is so consumed with what we aren't. With all my failings, with all my problems, with all my shortcomings. And God wants to get our eyes off of us and get them on His beauty and His love for us and His forgiveness and all that He's done for you and what He's called you to and how much He is so passionate about you. Look, if we put all the passion of all the Christians together, we wouldn't even weigh on the scale compared to the passion God has for you. Did you know that God is passionate for you? The Bible says that God rejoices over you with shouts of joy. He rejoices over you. Like a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. Now, you know why the Bible said that? It didn't say like a husband rejoices over his wife. (laughs) Did you ever wonder why? (laughs) Well, because God knows he's dealing with humans. But let me tell you, I've never met a bridegroom on the wedding day who wasn't really excited to get with the girl who wasn't at that moment in time, that still-framed photo of time, rejoicing over His bride. God is like that with you every second of every day for forever. He rejoices over you. And God wants the roots of your life to go down there. And if you put them there, water them and nurture them and get your thought life going in that direction, God promises you something. You will experience the love of God for yourself. You will experience it. And you will be filled with the fullness of God and you will experience life to its fullest. Many years ago, it was 1981. I've been following Christ for about six years. And those first years were extremely passionate. I knew, like I shared with you last week, that God had called me, the experience that I told you about, almost dying in those car things. God had gotten a hold of my life, and I knew my life would never be the same. And I surrendered my life to God. But I was now about six years into the Christian life. I had been married for a couple of years. And in all honesty, marriage brought some pretty bad things out of me. Things that, to be honest, I didn't know were there. Certainly things I hoped wouldn't have been there. Things that I'm not proud of were there. It brought out a violent temper. The pressures and the strains of life brought out passions that I'm not proud of. It brought out of my mouth things that I wished had not come out. 
And it brought out of my life things I wished had not come out of my flesh. <clears throat> Six years into my Christian life, 1981, I was extremely discouraged. Extremely discouraged. I didn't let anybody know this. I still put on my Christian smile at the appropriate times. I was like the guy who had a little tree out in the backyard. The tree was slowly dying, but he would go and put fruit on it and tape the fruit and hope it would be there long enough for it rotted on the vine and fell on the ground. That's kind of how my Christian life was. I felt like I had lead boots on. I was extremely aware of a number of shortcomings in my life. Others felt more than free to make me aware of those shortcomings in my life. I was a, um, a deacon leader, not a pastor, in the church that I was involved in. I did the music. Everybody knew me. And because of some of the things in my life, I had to step out of that role and everybody knew about it. It was very public. It's one of the three times in my life I've never felt so much shame. I was working about 80 hours a week. And I knew I had a wife and I had a couple children. I had responsibility and I knew in my heart I'm not going to walk away like my father did, but I was losing my will to go on. And everything I looked at, everywhere I looked, I looked, I failed, Lord, as a Christian. I failed as a husband. I failed as a father. I failed as a provider. I failed as a man. Add it all up. I failed. I'm a failure. And that's all I could think about. And then a dear friend of mine thought he would put the final nail in the coffin and came over one night before work and said, Mark, I just want you to know. And he opened the book, to, the Bible, the book of James. And he said there are two kinds of wisdom, the wisdom that's above and the wisdom that's from below and demonic. And he said, this is your life, the wisdom that's from below and demonic. He left. I went to work, sat on my stool at the video arcade, tears kind of streaming down my face. It was a little bit embarrassing, a guy sitting in a video arcade. People are wanting change and tears are streaming down my face. And I'm wondering how I'm going to go on. A few nights later, a young man came up to the video arcade. He was a young man that my wife and I, two and a half years earlier, had led to Christ when we cooked at the sorority. He was one of the waiters for the sorority girls. He came up and he sat down. He said, Mark, can we talk? And you've got to remember again, I, I never, at this point, I never let anybody in on what was going on. I don't even know I, that I really talked to my wife about it. I, I felt quite a bit of shame. Just, I, I just didn't know how to articulate it. How do I tell my wife? I feel like a failure and everything. I failed you. And, of course, I think she already knew that. So my friend came up and <clears throat> he began to share with me, Mark, I'll tell you what, I've had it with this blank and Christian life. I've just, I don't have any hope. Well, so I put on my Christian smile and I opened my Bible because I usually carry it into my backpack. And I shared with him and I, I said, you know, you just need some hope. And I'm like thinking, yeah, like I need some hope. And so I'm telling him all the things that are the right things to say. I knew all the right things to say. And I said, you know, you really ought to go get this tape. It's called The Blah, Blah, Blah and the Love of God. And there's this book. You ought to go get this book. And, I, you know, it's really good. Well, I heard it was really good. I never listened to it. I never read it. So my friend, he went and got it. Now, this is a guy who does nothing but read comic books and watches the Rockford Files. That's the extent of his intellectual stimulation. He comes back two weeks later. I'm at the video arcade, still kind of in my stupor. Actually, I stayed there for six months. Some of the most discouraging six months of my entire life. 
I would hardly lift my head up at the table at dinner time. I only had an hour anyway. I'd just eat and go lay on the couch. He came up. He said, Mark, I thought it was a different guy. He said, my whole life's changed. I can't believe this stuff. This is incredible, Mark. Thank you. Thank you so much for putting me on to this. And he left that night and I thought, you know, geez, maybe I ought to take some of my own medicine. You know, maybe I need that tape. So, I had received a drill for Christmas from my wife's parents. And I'm, I knew I'd never use a drill. And if I needed a drill, I could borrow one. But I needed the money more than the drill. So I made this secret plan. I didn't tell my wife. I didn't tell anybody. But I banked the rest of my life. Now, this is no lie. I mean, not exaggerating. I banked the rest of my entire life on Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, the world had been squeezing into its mold as a failure. The devil was having his way with me. The flesh was having its way with me. I was extremely discouraged. It had grabbed me by the throat, slammed me up against the wall, and told me you'll never be a thing, Mark. You'll never amount to nothing. You might as well just walk away from this family because they'd be better off without you. Those are the kind of things going through my mind. I said to the Lord in tears, I said, Lord, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you this. I'm going to give you my thoughts, but I'm not strong enough to even get my own mind on what it needs to be on. So here's what I'm going to do, Lord. I'm going to go get a Walkman. Sony had just come out with Walkmans just a few years earlier, so they were hardly, they were hardly a new thing. And I went and bought one. I trade, got the money for my drill, and I bought one, and I bought a pack of batteries, and I went to our tape library at the church, and I asked them for seven obscure tapes on the love and forgiveness of God. I made a little plan. And I said, you know what, Mark? Every day for a solid year, I'm going to listen to one of those tapes. See, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. And you know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So I knew what I needed was truth, but I needed someone I could trust, because I didn't trust me, who would tell me the truth. I thought, well, that would be one of my leaders. So I went and got his tapes. I averaged 18 hours a week on those tapes. I kept records. 18 hours a week I listened to those tapes. The only time I've ever worn a tacky little thing on my belt, and it wasn't a CD holder or a tape holder, it was a little, the only thing they had in those days was a camera bag dangling from my, and I had these little earbuds, you know, they called them, and you just stuck them in your ear because I didn't want to mess up my hair. And I bought batteries, batteries. In six months... Well, no, it wasn't six months. It was in several months. My wife was beginning to wonder who she was married to. My wife started listening to him. We would lay in bed till two and three in the morning, and it was as if we had been born again, again. Because for the first time in my life, I really began to believe in my heart that my sin didn't matter anymore. None of it. That I was really, truly forgiven. That God really loved. If you would have asked me, Mark, okay, Billy Graham's got some things he's praying about and you've got some things he's praying about. Who do you think God's going to answer first? Duh. Billy Graham. And of course he's going to answer Billy Graham. Billy Graham has nothing on you. The Pope has nothing on you. God loves you just as much. Billy Graham stands before God, not because he's preached to two billion people in his lifetime, but because Christ's blood forgave him and God loves him just as much as he loves you. Now, I really believed that. And it changed my life. And I'm here tonight because of it. 
And some of you ever heard the Renew tapes. Those Renew tapes contain those messages. Almost 50,000 of them have gone out over the years through Evergreen and changed people's lives because it's Paul's message just regurgitated in modern phrases. Imagine tonight she went home and when you got home there was a phone message. One of those tacky ones, but it was a phone message nonetheless that said, hey, Tom, this is Publishers Clearinghouse. We tried to reach you tonight. Please give us a call. We have some important information for you. You're thinking, oh my gosh. Right. All right. Because you get these calls all the time and you hang up on them. But you know, this one, it kind of haunts you. You leave it, you save it just in case. Next day you call. They say, well, is this Tom? So-and-so? Yeah, it is. Tom, we were wondering if we could come to your house. We have a special delivery for you. What, you don't need my credit card number or anything like that? No, we don't need social security number, credit card. We just need to confirm this is your address. My name is Bob Watson. I'm with Publishers Clearinghouse. We have something for you. We want to make sure you're home tomorrow at 4 o'clock. <clears throat> tomorrow at 4 o'clock, you're at home. Van pulls up in front of your house. There's Publishers Clearinghouse. Out jumps a guy. Out comes a camera. Out comes another person carrying a big cardboard check. And on the cardboard check, it says $1 million. Guy knocks on your door. All the neighbors are staring. Camera's in your face. And he says, congratulations, Tom. You're our Publishers Clearinghouse winner. You just won a million dollars. Now, of course, the moment, you know, you're trying to assess, is this real? Is this real? You finally conclude it's really real. It's real. And you take the check, and then he gives you another real check, cashier's check, guarantees that it's good. What would happen to you? What do you think you would feel on the inside? When you really finally believe this is real. This check is real. I'm a millionaire. Oh my gosh. No more pathetic old car anymore. What can I do? And all of a sudden you start to dream. Nothing back here matters anymore. You're a millionaire. That is the physiological reaction that I had when I came to understand that God loved me and that God loves me. And that reaction has continued. To this day. I'm not saying I'm perfect. You know that. I'm not saying there are times I still struggle. I'm saying that consistently. Remember we're not talking about perfection. We're aiming at consistently. Consistently. That has been the motivating, driving, irresistible force in my life. Gets me up every day. I mean it. I can't wait to get up this day. Who can I serve, Lord? Because I serve somebody. I show you I love you because you captured my heart. I'd like you to bow your heads with me tonight. I really believe in my heart there's a number of you here this evening that know Christ but don't really know Him. You know Him. You're going to go to heaven because you accepted Jesus, but you don't really know Him. You've been wrestling in your heart. devil's been beating you up. Your flesh has been beating you up. You just don't get it. You haven't come to that realization. And as I close tonight in prayer, there's two things I'd like to encourage you to do. And the first is, as I'm praying tonight, I'd like you to just silently ask the Lord, Lord, I want to know your love. Reveal your love to me. I want to experientially know beyond a shadow of a doubt 
that nothing can separate me from your love. Not my sin, not my failures, not my shortcomings. I want to get it. I want to understand it. I want it to be the irresistible driving force in my life. And secondly, I want you to determine to do something practical to discover it. I'd like to encourage you to call the Rock office. They will connect you to our media center and ask them for the series called The Awesome Love of God. It's four tapes. Ask them for the series The Awesome Love of God. And I would like you to listen to them till you get it. Till you really get it. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you tonight for the extraordinary love that you have for each person here tonight. Every single person in this auditorium, Lord, is loved personally by God. You're passionately committed to every single one of them. Zealously, enthusiastically, unconditionally committed to every single one of them. It does not matter what they've done. It does not matter what their past is. It does not matter what they do tomorrow or the next day or the next day because all of those sins have been paid for at the high cost of your son's blood. They're forgiven. They're dealt with. We don't even have to mess around wondering, oh, what about, oh, I'm so discouraged. We can just push right on through because your love is as fresh today as it was when we first caught your eye. Your love doesn't wane. It doesn't grow dim. It isn't fickle. It's constant and full of life. Father, I pray that you would ignite our hearts and ignite our souls till they are an unquenchable fire. In Jesus' name.